two, one. Hello, you lovely people trying to make the world a better place. Welcome to the Dead Man Walking Podcast. I am your host, Repeatedly Dead Fred, author of the soon-to-be-released medical trauma memoir, The Summer I Died 20 Times, which is where I get the name Repeatedly Dead Fred, because that's what happened to me. Make sense? Yes. So today we are doing some emerging author tale telling um, with Tiara. At, sorry, what's your last name? Uh, Riley. Riley. Yep. So you're Irish. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> not even an ounce. <laughs> okay. So Tiara is going to tell us her story of uh, how she came to write her book and the circumstances behind it. And I think this is going to be a fascinating tale. I know a little bit, but I'm not sharing. That's up for her to do. So Tiara, could you please tell the audience what's up with you? Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Fred. My pleasure. Um, so my, yeah. So my name is Tiara Nicole Riley. I am a, a four-time published author and a motivational speaker. Um, so my first book was called 23 and Finally Loving Me. And it was a a memoir of the journey to self-love and really what that process was for me. Uh, my second book, When Life Give You Lemons, is about perseverance and how do you survive the sour moments that come with life. Mm -hmm. uh, my third book is called Life After Loss, and it speaks to surviving the grief of miscarriage. Um, unfortunately, it happens in one in five pregnancies and to one in four women. Um, but of course, that's also the fathers, the aunts, the uncles, the cousins, the grandparents that are all connected right. to that baby. And we're hoping for a healthy baby and ended up with an angel. So that book really speaks to how do you process the grief? How do you deal with it? How do you move forward? Um, but also there's a chapter dedicated to how do you support someone through that process? Oh, nice. uh, and my fourth baby, uh, book baby, is mm -hmm. called uh, Closer to My Dreams. And it speaks to my journey to entrepreneurship and kind of what it took to kind of get to that point and all of the things that I've learned along the way. So are you an entrepreneur, entrepreneur or a budding entrepreneur like I am, who had absolutely zero intention of being an entrepreneur, and then just all these dominoes fell into place and you found yourself, hey, I'm writing a book and I have to learn how to market it and I have to learn how to public speak and I have to learn how to podcast and all the yeah. things that go along. Uh Yes and no. So I am the child of an of a full-time entrepreneur. My mother is an mm -hmm. accountant and has her own business um, 20 plus years. So I grew mm -hmm. up in the world of entrepreneurship and knew what that looked like. So I always knew I would be an entrepreneur, but I didn't know what I would do. I don't mm -hmm. like accounting. I knew I wasn't going to follow in those exact footsteps. Um, but I did always have a passion for entrepreneurship and knew at some point, um, like in my in my past lives, I've done like real estate and I've done um, event planning and just trying to figure out what is my lane for entrepreneurship. So I say yes and no, because I did kind of fall into it and, and I discovered my purpose by just being obedient to what I knew I was supposed to do in that moment. So my first book started as a journal. I really just mm -hmm. took a year to just journal my process and understand my healing journey. I was dedicated to just growth and development and writing is therapeutic for me. So I spent a year just writing it out and that was it at first. 
um, several years later, I felt the urge to just type what I had wrote physically. Mm -hmm. Um, Shortly after that, um, someone at my church had mentioned that her daughter had struggled with suicide and tried to take her life. Um, And suicide is something that I've, depression and suicide are some things that I've survived. Um, And I wrote about in my first book. So I sent her a digital copy, you know, just hoping that it would be helpful and help to have a conversation. And so in that conversation, I realized I was grateful for my experiences because I was able to help someone through their experience. Um, and so then I got, you know, really excited about that and um, decided that I was going to make it an actual book. Um, so I worked through the journal and kind of reorganized some things and structured it a little bit better. So it flowed um, and ended up getting it published. While it was in the process of being published, I was actually in the process of planning a women's empowerment event for my sorority. Mm-hmm. And I was the chair for the event, but my chapter president was like, I wonder if anyone in our chapter is an author. And I was like, well, my book will be out by then. <laughs> and she was like, you have to speak on the panel. Um, so that was, well, we had a panel and an actual opportunity to speak for each of the authors presented. So that was my first official like opportunity to be a stand in as a motivational speaker. Um, and I had spoken publicly before and I didn't really have issues there and I wasn't like afraid of public speaking or anything like that. Mm. Um, but this was my first time stepping into the light as a motivational speaker and it felt real. It felt like I had finally found my purpose after, you know, two and a half decades of life and just really trying to figure out like what's for me. I felt for the first time, like this is it. Um, And the best part about it for me is still feeling like my experiences and the challenges that I've been through can help somebody get through theirs and it makes it worth it. The pain, the tears, the trauma is worth it if I can help minimize or help prevent someone from experiencing similar challenges. So I did fall into it, but I always knew at some point I would. <laughs> I, I think if you've grown up in a, a church um, mm-hmm. or a synagogue, you mm-hmm. sort of get a superpower, even if you don't yeah. know it, because yeah. you've either got your preacher or your rabbi or whoever, who are usually very eloquent people, and mm-hmm. they're showing you how to speak to an audience with yeah. meaning. Yeah. And whether you're paying attention or napping like a lot of people, <laughs> you're you're absorbing it and you're learning those techniques, which I'm Absolutely. sure made it very easy or much easier for you yeah. to get up in front of people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I agree. And I think all of us have gifts, right? And I think um, because I did grow up in the church, I was able to be a little bit more sensitive to what it could be. Like I knew mm-hmm. to, I knew I had something inside of me. I knew I had a purpose and I was actively looking for it. Um, so that did help. And it helped me uh, reach those things a little bit earlier, um, you know, compared to some people who um, just don't know what their purpose is and they go several decades through life and just wondering. And, and I was kind of on that path because I knew there was something I was supposed to do, but I couldn't figure out what. And I was adamant about figuring out what it was and trying everything under the sun to figure it out. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So I was grateful when I when I landed and it just 
it clicked, it felt organic. It felt like I was making an impact on the lives of others. And it was exactly what I was supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I've tried to do very intentionally throughout my business is I make an intentional effort to do what I'm supposed to do in that moment. And I also stop mm-hmm. doing things that I no longer feel like I'm supposed to be doing anymore. So it right. might've been the right thing at one point, but then, you know, it, it's no longer right for me. So then I shift and I pivot and I make those adjustments as necessary. Um, and I think we all learned the, the the skill of pivoting, you know, in the past couple of years, but it's, it's a, it's a game changer to be able to be flexible and flow and ebb. And, um, and I just became a mom within the last couple of years as well. And so that's yes. a transition and a change and, you know, learning to pivot. So it's definitely been helpful. I think there's a a large continuum of people who have the ability to pivot. Yes. And pivot quickly and pivot a number of times. Yeah. And that that is also a superpower. And some people just, it's just not their personality to either go searching for their purpose like you did mm-hmm. um, or recognize it when it prevents itself. You yeah. know, I, I, I have a buddy from my MBA class who became very successful in the corporate world. But if you ask him what he did differently than, you know, the hundred of us that graduated with him, he'll just say, I, I, you know, I kept my eyes open for opportunities, whatever that means, you know, and for, for most of the people he says that to, nobody knows what that means. Right. <laughs> but, but it, you know, it's just innate in him and it's you know, innate in you. Thank you. Thank you. No, I, I take that as a compliment. Thank you so much. <laughs> sure. And, and your mom obviously did a good job with you. Yes. So. Way to <laughs> go, mom. Way to go. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. So would you like to tell us a little bit about how you got published? Because you know, so many people are trying to self-publish and they think, oh, I just get it up on Amazon. And I'm going to be a New York Times bestseller. And there might be a little bit missing in that story. There's a few things missing in that story. Um, So I am considered self-published, but I used a self-publishing company. So what that means is the company that I worked for or worked with, Divine Legacy Publishing, um, she's great. I love her. Uh, One of my sorority sisters, she has a phenomenal organization. But what she does is she empowers authors to publish their books and she does the editing she does the she works with the graphic designer she helps you do the the legal pieces that you don't even think about like the copyright and the all mm-hmm. the things that you don't know that you don't know yeah she does all of that for you and because she works as a contractor it's still your work you're still self published it's still you you still own every piece of it you get 100% of the profits which is different from a traditional publisher where mm-hmm. they want to be able to dictate what's said if it's said they can take things out they can you know they have some mm-hmm. creative control and they want a piece of the profit as well. Um, So working with her as a self-publishing company um, allowed me to, you know, I paid her her fee and that was it financially. Um, And the ease of being able to just say, here's the book, let me know what I got to do and go from there. So once it's published, of course, I do all the work, right? That's the trade-off of self-publishing is 
Mm-hmm. I am responsible for selling every copy of the book. Whereas a traditional publisher, yes, they take a profit, but they also help you market and they help you get it to other customers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> They're supposed to, but yes. Um, and so with that, the trade-off is every copy of my books I personally have sold. Um, but with that, you just got to get a little creative and having, you know, book release parties. And um, when I do speaking engagements, I always have copies of my books available. Um, mm-hmm. For the first couple of years, I kept books in my card. I'm like, you want a copy now? I, I have some with me. <laughs> Um, you know, just whatever it takes and doing vendor opportunities and, you know, selling online and, and things like that. Um, but it, it really just take in word of mouth and um, especially mm-hmm. with my book Life After Loss, because grief and miscarriage is such a taboo subject, a lot of people don't know how to talk about it. They don't know how to deal with it. They don't know how to support people through it. So because I have made the opportunity to say like, this is pretty much a handbook to surviving Mm -hmm. it, um, in a lot of ways, people will reach out and say, Hey, my so-and-so just lost the baby. I need to order a copy of your book. Um, so word of mouth has definitely helped with with that book Mm -hmm. for sure. Um, and, and just in general, just the vending opportunities and getting able to speak to people and let them know what the books are about, um, has absolutely been helpful. Okay. So we need to take a step back because you've mentioned you have four books, Yes, but, but we don't know the titles of your books. Oh, yes. People need to find you. (laughs) No, no, no. Absolutely. So I did mention it earlier, but I I skipped over it. So the first book is 23 and Finally Loving Me. Um, The second book is When Life Gives You Lemons. Mm -hmm. My third book is called Life After Loss. And then my fourth book is Closer to My Dreams. And they are available on Amazon as well as on my website, which is tiaranicolereilly.com. There's that or Irish you name, my again. name in Amazon and it'll pull it up. <laughs> okay. So are you finding most of your books are coming from word of mouth? Absolutely. Either word of mouth or vending opportunities or after speaking engagements. Um, a majority of my books have been sold in person, probably oh. upwards of 95%. So what's been the hardest area for you to to get to speak like a bookstore or a library or you know a sorority function yeah well thankfully my sorority has been very supportive um sigma gamma mm-hmm. sorority incorporated i've had the opportunity to speak at a number of events there and i'm grateful for each and every opportunity um i have not actively sought out bookstores and in, in, in libraries and things of that nature um no real reason not. It's just, you know, I just haven't actively mm. approached it. Um, but what I will say is the challenge with getting into bookstores is like the bookstore person, um, sometimes the owner, but whoever is responsible mm-hmm. has to want your book in the store. Right. And so then there's a little bit of a barrier there. And um 
personally, I like to take the path of least resistance. So <laughs> if ending opportunities are successful for me and I get to just get in front of the customer, that's typically the way, like when I know I need to sell a couple of copies, like I'll look for opportunities to do vending opportunities um, or chances to do that and just lean in. Um, and I actually am working on revamping my speaking opportunities. So that's that's been what worked for me over the past few years. And so I, I tend to just go with what I know works. <laughs> sure. Is there somebody you'd like to speak in front of that you just haven't had that opportunity yet? Everyone. Um, <laughs> no, I, so the audience I love to speak in front of that I would love to speak more in front of um, are millennial women of color. And the reason being is because obviously I'm a millennial woman of color. Um, but beyond that, one thing that I've noticed is that women of color do not prioritize self organically. Mm -hmm. It's something that we have to work intentionally to do. Um, mm -hmm. And we have to be, in some instances, we have to be given permission to do things like self-care and mental health concerns and therapy. And like, we have to have these conversations as often as possible mm -hmm. in a sense to give ourselves permission, but also to be able to understand that you're not alone. And a lot of us are suffering in, in silence, but also in isolation because we feel like we're the only person suffering from issue X, Y, or Z. And so the more open and the more often we're open about the challenges that we're facing, I think our com my community will be able to grow and heal in a way that's definitely necessary. Mm -hmm. Can I let you in on a little secret? Absolutely. I don't think it's only women of color. <laughs> and I'm sure it's not, but yeah. I just, that's the community that I am a part of, that I was raised mm -hmm. in, that I understand the language of. And so, mm -hmm. um, and not just the language, but the experiences of. And so I don't mm -hmm. believe that it's an isolated issue that only we're dealing with. Um, mm -hmm. But I do think we deal with it in a very unique way when sure. we process, um, particularly in America, when we process the generational traumas, when we process the historical challenges that we face, um, the systemic issues that are rooted in America, we all are dealing with our own issues, but I think our we're all dealing with it differently and we're all experiencing it differently. And so if I had to pick a community to speak to more often, it would absolutely be ours and in a space of healing and growth and how do we get back to a healthy place internally? Sure. And as we were talking a little bit earlier, you, you have grown up in a fairly crazy locale. Yes. <laughs> so uh, Absolutely. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I am located in uh, what we call the DMV. So it's D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, but it's basically the, the metropolitan area of D.C. Um, it is a very... Crazy is, is, is probably a great ex, uh, descriptive of it, mm -hmm. um, but it is a very diverse, it is a very uh, well-established area. So a mm -hmm. lot of people in the area are either military, government, or both. So there's a lot of opportunity here. There's a lot of um, 
wealth here. Uh, for the longest time, Prince George's County, Maryland, uh, was listed as the wealthiest Black county in America. Um, and that's the county that I had the pleasure of growing up in. And so you look mm -hmm. at the world very differently. I have lived in the South for a couple of years. I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina and loved mm -hmm. it. Um, but it was just a different experience. So when you come from an environment that's incredibly culturally diverse and um, not only is it culturally diverse, but the people in power, the people, your teachers, your principals, your healthcare providers, the judges, the like they all look like the community that they're serving. Mm -hmm. um, you grow up in a different environment, whereas opposed to a lot of places in the South of it, like the Southern parts of America, um, they may be culturally diverse, but the people in positions of power are not, and they don't, are, they are not reflective of, so the people making decisions for your life don't look like you. And so mm -hmm. you just, you grow up in a different space. And so, uh, when I actually got pregnant with my daughter, it was almost a no brainer to come back to Maryland because mm -hmm. that is the environment. I wanted her to grow up with, and go to school with people of all races and genders and, you know, just to feel like race wasn't a identifier. Mm -hmm. I did not identify wholly. Like I knew I, I grew up knowing I was black, but it mm -hmm. wasn't a thing until I went to school in Virginia. And then I came back to Maryland and then I went and moved to Charlotte. And then I came back to Maryland and went to live in Charlotte again and came back to Maryland. And you just notice the subtle ways in which you are faced with the reality that oh, my race is a thing now, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. whereas growing up for, you know, all of two decades, it was, it wasn't even a part of the discussion because it was, it was such a diversely rich area. Mm -hmm. it, it's interesting how people have different experiences. I grew yeah. up in Winnipeg. Okay. <laughs> Very multicultural city. And I played sports all my life. I played hockey. I played football. We had black kids. We had Filipino kids. We had, you know, Native American kids. Uh, I'm Jewish. We had Jewish. Kids. I mean, but you didn't look at that as how something, somebody was defined. Right. And so I don't think I really, even though, you know, I knew about the Holocaust and stuff, I don't think I really understood racism. Mm. And then in the early 90s, I went to a rugby tournament in Kansas City um and they have swope park which is i think the second biggest park in america after okay. central park oh wow and it, it had two entrances if i recall correctly one oh. went through the zoo and one th went through the park part mm -hmm. and they were doing construction on the zoo and so there was down to one entrance mm -hmm. and so it used to be the whites went through one entrance and the blacks went through another and mm -hmm. this was just mind-boggling to me yeah and so we have to go out through the alleged black section mm. and so there's all these you know mostly teens in their cars sitting on cars and listening to music like teens do yeah and yeah the, <laughs> and the guy that's giving me a lift he's like okay roll up your windows and lock your doors and don't make eye contact yeah and i was just like how what's wrong with you yeah you they're know? just listening to music <laughs> yeah so eventually yeah. I just rolled down my window because traffic was so backed up and I just started talking to these people. And I think this guy crapped his pants, but okay. yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But. And it's, it, and it's those kind of subtleties that, that I experienced when I lived in the South that I did not experience growing up. And like you, like 
although I am, you know, of color um, and I identify as African-American, it was never, I didn't really experience racism until I went to college. And I was like, oh, huh. And you hear about it and you think about it and you, you know, it's, you hear it on the news and you think this, I had the luxury of growing up thinking that it was a um, thing of the past. And, and Mm -hmm. when I went to college, I realized how present it is. And when I moved down South, uh, even more so, um, it just looks different. And so um, it's unfortunate, but for some people, um, it's a conditioned experience. So the guy who was giving you that drive, I don't think he had malice intent. Mm. I think he was conditioned to believe that he was actually unsafe, you know? Yeah. Um, whereas the reality is the kids were just listening to music. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And pretty good music, if I recall. So, <laughs> I, I don't okay. know if you can tell, but I am also a person of color. My mm. my color happens to be orange, but... Uh, <laughs> Okay, I love that. It is a color. I love it. Okay, absolutely. So this is uh, my least favorite part of the of the interview when we're okay. starting to come to a close. Yeah. So yeah. I'm going to give you the opportunity to pick a number uh, from one to thirty, and I'm going to ask you a question, and uh, we'll see where this goes. A little bit okay. of lighthearted end of the interview. Yes, of course. Uh, Twenty-two. It's my favorite number. Okay. Which historical figure do you most identify with? Wow. Historical figure do I most identify with? Wow. Remember, you can pass. I'm going to, but no, I'm going to actually say Nat Turner. I love Nat Turner and his story and his determination and his perseverance and his um willingness to fight for those who couldn't fight for themselves mm-hmm. um, and that he was willing to die on that hill like he quite literally was willing to risk it all just to fight for justice and for fight to fight for what he believed was the right thing in that moment um mm-hmm. and also if you understand like his earlier experiences um he tried to assimilate, right? Like he tried to understand how to be um, palatable and blend in um, and understand how to navigate both worlds. Um, And then eventually he reached a point where he was like, absolutely not. I cannot live in this this delusion. I can't do this anymore. Um, So I'm going to have to say Nat Turner. (laughs) Cool. Now I'm going to have to look up who he is. I have no idea. <laughs> yes, um, the easiest way to do that. They made a movie about him called "A Birth of a Nation." So that's the easiest way to learn his story. But he's, yeah, he's he's worth learning. Okay, well, I appreciate you coming on. I've loved your story, and if you'll just give people one more uh, heads up, how they can find sure. you. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me. Um, I am on all, all social media platforms at Tierra Nicole Riley. Um, and then the, my website is also tiaranicolereilly.com. Um, and my email is tiaranicolereilly at gmail.com. So please, please, please feel free to reach out. Um, and I am everywhere. Thank you. You are everywhere. Thank you so <laughs> <I am>. much. <laughs> and thank you to my lovely audience for tuning into the Dead Man Walking podcast. And as the cool kids say, like, subscribe, smash that button, do all the <laughs> other things you're supposed to. 
share yeah. with your neighbors, spread the word, and uh, we'll see you again soon. Thanks so yeah. much. <laughs> Take care.